And welcome back to the Conservative Atheist Podcast. This is your host, the Conservative Atheist. My co-host won't be able to join us today, but I am joined by a very, very interesting person. Uh, his name is Jim Goad. He's an author, and he's been around for a, quite some time, a very uh, successful and very interesting man. Welcome to the show, Jim Goad. Thank you, sir. Yes, and uh, okay, and so you were born around what, you're about uh, nine, ten years older than me. You are born around 60, 61? 61, yes. 61. Okay. And uh, where are you originally from? Clifton Heights, Pennsylvania, about five miles outside of Philly. I was born in a hospital in Ridley Park, Delaware County, Pennsylvania, in a brick row home, entirely uh, Catholic neighborhood. You were either Irish or Italian and nothing else. Westbrook Park is the neighborhood in Clifton Heights that I grew up. And uh, statistically, I think more people, more households, speak Italian as a native language than, uh, than any other place outside of Italy. Oh, wow. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually half, half Irish, half, uh, half Jewish. Okay. Um, although every time I say that around somebody who's Jewish, they say, no, 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 you're, you're full Jewish. There's no such thing as half Jewish, but that's a, that's an argument for another time. <laughs> trying to think um, of like what half Irish, half Jewish makes you like you, you, <laughs> <laughs> you're a greedy drunk i'm not sure like yes. what, what that yes. okay i i I eat, I eat a lot of potatoes and uh and and i i, I squeeze a, a nickel to the nickel shits okay so that yeah that's that's uh i'm a very very uh very uh frugal i like to call it so you think do you think jewish is a, a genetic thing uh it, it seems to it appears to have both genetic and uh and uh cultural and uh religious components to it because I know okay. you can do, you can you can actually convert to Judaism. Um, you know, nobody goes out and tries to seek uh, seek you know converts, but you can convert to Judaism. I I grew up uh, actually uh, Catholic, so I did I didn't grow up. Uh, How did that go? Uh, I had a lot of problems with the nuns. You know, we we had some uh, we had some falling out. But did uh, you go to Catholic school? Yeah. How how long? Uh, for a few years, I I kept getting kicked out, so I'd have to go to public school. Actually kicked out. Wow. I went for 12 years. I was the, uh, the only kid in my sixth grade class. I think the only kid in the history of my grade school to fail conduct back when they gave, uh, grades for behavior, but they didn't kick me out. So I'm a little, I'm a little envious. Yeah. And, and, uh, I don't know. There was a whole, whole issue. So, um, I, I, but I, I'm, I'm an atheist. I have absolutely nothing against religion except for, of course, one. And I think you can guess which one that is. Let, uh, let me, let me just because people throw that term around, and a lot of people think, like, since I don't believe in Christianity, that I'm an atheist. Okay. As I understand it, I mean, and these are uh, elastic terms, but to me, an atheist is someone who believes everything came from nothing. Do you believe that? Uh, no, 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 no. I, I, I believe uh, I, I believe that everything has existed in one form or another uh, eternally. One of the one of the laws, one of the uh, principles of philosophy is is that if you believe something's true about one thing, then you must assume that it could be true about something else. Not that it is, but that it could be. And so, if God could be eternal, then perhaps the universe could be eternal. Uh, people have a very easy time thinking of infinity going in one direction. But time doesn't really have a direction. It's it doesn't. There's no real direction for time. So if you can go infinity forward, you can go infinity back in any direction. And so I mean, I believe uh, my whole orientation is that I think people are too stupid to figure out the origins of the universe. And of course, that's about it. yeah, 
and but uh every attempt they have to to define it or pin it down has been laughable but i mean I, I think there's obviously you know there's there's some unifying force or some consciousness but uh we just can't figure it out well, they, they say that there's more stars in the just the visible universe than there are grains of sand on the entire planet. And that includes the grains of sand on the bottom. And so we're 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 like we're little tiny specks, we're little tiny organisms on a little grain of sand in the middle of, of a vast universe, and we think we're going to know the, the secrets of the universe. And I, I just don't see how it's a little I mean, as much of an egomaniac as I am, I think it's egotistical to think you have the answer. Right. That's what that's one thing people don't understand about me. I I never I never suggest policy. I never like it's just I, I attack what I, I attack other people's answers. I don't really think uh, I think if we were smart enough to figure out the answers, the world wouldn't be in the mess that it's in. Now, you and I, I, I looked at some of the information. I looked over your information as far as your, you know, your personal bio. And uh, you and I have some things in common. Um, apparently, your your parents were a little brutal. Yeah. And uh, you also had to deal with brutality in your neighborhood. Same thing with me. Same thing yeah. with me. I, I I grew up, I was either being beat by my parents or beat by the neighborhood. There was Philly's no a tough, I mean, it wasn't technically Philly, but uh, I mean, it's a working class neighborhood five miles outside of Philly, but uh, I've never been able to find this. Apparently there was some uh, survey, sociological study in the early 90s that determined Philadelphia was the most hostile city in America. And I can see that. <laughs> It's it's a rough place, and it's only gotten worse. I mean, since I left, not that I, not that as a result of me leaving, but uh, New York has improved. If you go to the Bronx or some of those places in the seventies, it was like Dresden at the end of World War II. But I think someone poured a lot of money into New York, and, but didn't in Philly. And when I was a kid, it was I think the population was two point one million people. Last I checked, it's like one point four. So it's it's a half of a ghost town at this point, too. Right. Right, yeah, all the major cities, all the major. Detroit is is virtually, um, you know, it's it's like you said, it's a ghost town. And I'm not sure if you've seen uh, there's there's a neighborhood in Philly known as Kensington. You can just look up Kensington Avenue on YouTube, and it's like the biggest open air drug market in the country, maybe the West. And it's it used to be uh, Kensington Avenue used to be the uh, segregation line, the dividing line between poor white Philly, and then there was an area like known as the Badlands. It was Puerto Rican, which was the worst area in philly and then all black north philly but now thankfully due to progress kensington avenue is a racially integrated place where junkies die on camera well as as they love to say over and over again the mantra uh you know diversity is our strength i, I don't really see any evidence of that but but i, I keep hearing that anyway so um now i, I know that uh, you you were interested in acting for a while when you were a younger man what made you decide to head head towards uh, to be an author instead of an actor? It was a decision that was made for me. I I, uh, I was in plays as as a teen. I was Jesus three different times in three different pr productions of Godspell, which was this fruity hippie Christian musical that was like Jesus Christ Superstar that was big in the seventies. And the day after I graduated from high school, I took a. Uh, I took a couple trains and buses up to New York City, went to NYU and auditioned for their theater department. And I, I auditioned as Alex DeLarge from A Clockwork Orange, and I got accepted to study under Stella Adler, world-famous acting teacher who taught De Niro and Marlon Brando. And I remember that summer after I got accepted, you know, of course, it, it wasn't a full scholarship. 
my dad was finally drying out from alcoholism. He was at some drunk farm and we went up and asked him. And I remember my mom in the, the other side of the room, I remember him shaking his head. No, it's like, no, nah, not going to pay a penny for it. So I drove a cab and went to journalism school at Temple University instead. Obviously it worked out. Obviously it was the right decision. Eh, not really. <laughs> but yeah. uh, part of the part of the thing too is... Uh, at least as a writer, you can pretty much do it by yourself. Uh, as an actor, you have to deal with like the most insane and vain people in the world. And it's, it's people who pretend they're other people for a living. So the amount of nut jobs and like, and I, I can't even imagine trying to exist in the theater world these days, but oh, I mean, yeah. at least, uh, at least writing, you get, you get into some ideas. There's not a lot of ideas in any movies or any of that stuff these days. Well, I mean, if you're in a relationship, whether you're married or dating someone who's an actor or an actress, uh, I think it'd be very difficult to know how sincere the person was because they're they're a professional at pretending, you know, faking emotions. So that, right, right, that's and cool. uh, but it is. I mean, <laughs> being an actor is like being in a yoga class; like you're the only straight guy. So it's. I, I mean, it's a great. I mean, it's great for finding women but the, the the yoga women i'm not sure they're especially neurotic but actresses are insane so. so if you will tell me about your relationship with uh if and obviously if there's any any uh, issues you don't want to talk about you know I, i'm not you're not under the gun but tell me about your your relationship with desi i'm sorry debbie rosali is that am i saying that right well, it was a D. Judyized name. I think it was Rosenbaum. Yeah, it's funny. I had a girlfriend after I got out of prison. Her her mom's name was actually I've dated two Jewish girls whose moms were named Rose Rosenbaum. The Jewish girl after I got out of prison, her they changed their surname to Rose. It was Amy Rose and Rosalie. It was like the the most un unconvincing uh, D. Judy's name. There's, there's no surname, Rosalie, R-O-S-A-L-I-A, but she was Debbie Rosalie. Gotcha. And uh, we met at a Johnny Thunders concert in 1986. He was the guitar player for the New York Dolls. And I was beguiled by her, uh, her sociopathic hatred of all things human. And uh, we clicked on that, but as I detail in the book Shit Magnet, uh, we just we moved into a bubble and we wound up eating each other alive. And God, we, uh, I mean, she was, she was kind of the core of answer me, the magazine where I made my bones, but, um, uh, she was a, she, in the sense that she was just incurably negative and her hatred was genuine. Wasn't a very polished writer. If you look at the, I mean, she maybe accounted for 10% of the pages in answer me, uh, and probably half of the words in her own articles. I, I rewrote a lot of her stuff, but the core of her just rampaging negativity, that was the foundation of the magazine. Cause I, I graduated and I, I found a job in New York as a proofreader, then a typesetter, which is how I learned how to do layout and everything. But, uh, was having trouble with, uh, just getting edited. They would, they would always take out my favorite parts without fail. And then one day the woman who introduced me to Debbie, Donna Gaines, a sociologist written a couple books she uh debbie wrote this because there was this huge like baby fetish thing in the 80s baby boom three men and a baby baby on board and (laughs) we were disgusted by this and uh but debbie wrote this article called babies are dirty just about how much she hated babies and hated having a period and and every time she was pregnant i mean very pro-abortion but uh our friend donna said 
Jimmy, you need to stop writing these stupid little music reviews and interviewing rappers, and this is what you need to make your magazine. And yeah, I think I took a, a cue from Donna, and also, I mean, John Waters, the director, he said, uh, he said, the the secret to glamour or success is to take your worst, your worst feature, and make it glamorous. And mine was anger, so okay, that's going to be a virtue. And so we we did four issues. Uh, first issue didn't get much attention; it wasn't very focused. A lot of it was reprints from other stuff, you know. But it was stuff that was reprinted that I put the good lines back in. Answer Me was essentially everything that wound up on the cutting room floor as as a magazine. And uh, the second issue, a lot of a lot of this stuff is timing too. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer was a huge story, and the second issue featured a hundred serial killers. Plus, it was a negative review from one zine in L.A. called Ben is Dead that just sent us on the war path because Ben is Dead was, and it was a pretty prominent zine back then, but these were little rich girls pretending to be punk rockers, but they had the gall to accuse us of, you know, they, they said it was expensively printed and what's next, tanning salon ads. It's like, well, number one, we never had ads. We made a point of not having ads. But I guess when you actually have to work your entire life and some little rich snot is accusing you of being privileged, you want to kill them. And that's what fueled the rage in the second issue. The second issue took off like wildfire. We had to get it reprinted three times. And uh, third issue was about suicide. Fourth issue was about rape. That led to an obscenity trial in Bellingham, Washington. The uh, the jury yeah. thought it was obscene, but they the, the technicality was they didn't think the newsstand owners were aware that it was obscene when they sold it. So they got off the third issue. I mean, the second issue was quoted by, uh, Francisco Martin Duran, who shot at the white house in 1994. He quoted it. The third issue had the, the biggest series of really weird, uh, coincidences or <laughs> a constellation inner lattice work of, you know, synchronicities where one was uh, Dr. Jack of We got his, when he was huge, the suicide doctor in like 1993, yeah. we got his home phone number and we had Debbie, whose mom had died of ovarian cancer, call him and say, Hey, I'm dying of ovarian cancer. What can I do? And, and Kevorkian was cool. We transcribed it in the, in the third issue. And he just said, you know, don't panic. Send me your, send me your medical records. We'll handle this. But then four years later, Debbie actually got ovarian cancer and wound up dying from it. Uh, Kurt Cobain, who was, uh, he was artist. Jim Blanchard did the cover of, uh, the third issue. Uh, this was like a picture of Hitler looking up at these words like suicide freaks. And, uh, Blanchard got backstage at the last Nirvana concert in Seattle. And he, by handing out answer me's and Fanographics comics where he worked, he claims he saw Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love reading the suicide issue on a couch in the green room. And the, the centerfold to that was a graphic picture of a guy sitting on a couch who blew his head off with a shotgun. And a couple months later, Kurt Cobain blew his head off with a shotgun. And then the creepiest thing was uh, three British kids who were on tour in America, like on vacation in America, killed themselves. And one of them sent me her life savings. Uh, so wow. yeah, it's it's kind of a I'm not a superstitious guy, but it's hard not to think it was cursed in some way. Yeah, it's it sounds like it might have influenced people to do things that that well, I mean not necessarily. Well, that, but people don't about. they're not careful readers. Uh I mean, you you would ban the Bible if if you uh linked it to all the nutcases who've killed hookers based on, you know, the horror of Babylon passage or whatever. 
uh, in the suicide issue, I said like that one of the, if, if she had actually read it, one of the life's cruel ironies is the people who are suicidal are the only ones who shouldn't kill themselves because at least they sort of, they, they're emotive enough to realize how futile and unfair life can be. But I mean, most, most people that, that really kind of, you know, shouldn't be here are the people that, that, uh, they're so narcissistic they don't care one way or the other. Well, it's, it's like one of those things I've noticed too, a principle, the people who apologize are never the ones who should. You tell somebody you had a bad time, like, oh, I'm sorry. It's like, yeah, you're not the one who wrecked my car. The person who wrecked my car should be. But that's it's one of those paradoxes. I, I think generally my orientation is I'm very cynical about human nature and especially people who claim they're good. They're usually not the good ones. How can I trust anyone else? Even I screw me sometimes. What was I missed that last part? I said, how can I trust, my, my, my motto has always been, how can I trust anyone else? Even I screw me sometimes. Right. And I've felt that way my entire life. So I mean, I think I've always, uh, I've always had good instincts. I just haven't been good at following them. I think a lot of the trouble I've gotten into is getting involved with people that I had a bad uh, feeling about. And, you know, sure, people, <laughs> I've got a history, you're free to have a bad feeling about me, but uh yeah, usually, I mean, the people I've I've considered solid from the start have never crossed me. So, uh, Anne Sky Ryan, I know you. Mm -hmm. uh, she was she was a stripper. You dated her for a while. Um, how did that go? A year and one day. Yeah. A year and one day. Um, did you have anything you want to say about that? Any any? Uh, That's exhaustively her? documented in my book, Shit Magnet. She's the one I went to prison over. Uh, right. I, I had a restraining order against her at the time this incident happened. Uh, if you want to hear some of her death threats that she left on my voicemail, it's jimgo.net slash sound slash an, A-N-N-E dot M-P-3. You know, threatening to cut my head off. Uh, slice my nipples off, blow my head into smithereens. I'll never be able to make a public appearance again. Oh, hey, hey, darling, I got your restraining order. I want you to hand this tape to the police. I can't stay away from you. They're going to have to put me behind. Like a legitimate psychopath. And I, I know when, you know, a guy starts saying that or any kind of criminal. Oh, of course. Yeah. She, but yeah, anyone who's actually ever encountered her is like you got railroaded. And uh, I went, what I wound up doing was but I got the restraining order. Like I figured that would keep her in check, but I stupidly kept getting back with her. And then one night we got, and, and she'd attacked me on a bus earlier that day. I still have a scar on my elbow from where she bit me. Um, that night I drove her home. I, I was making it clear. We were done. She, she lunged at me as I told her to get out of the car. She, uh, scratched my face up. I held her wrists. Black dude comes up. And the only reason I mentioned he's black is because this is Portland despite how racially sensitive are there essentially no black people in Portland compared to everywhere else, especially to where I live now in Atlanta. And, uh, he, are you guys okay? And I let go of her wrists and I'm like, yeah, we're, we're fine. You know, that that's how much of a rampaging, controlling, abusing, even though she just scratched my face up again after attacking me on a bus, I'm like, nah, we'll handle it. And because I don't think it's, you know, romance no matter how fucked up it is is any of the government's business as i turned back to her after the guy went in the apartment building she punched me in the nose i saw the blood and i beat the living daylights out of her i drove up to the hills intending to kill her 
And uh, that's that's there's a chapter in Ship Magnet called Roadkill, which is basically my internal dialogue while I was beating her up. And this is something that really, <laughs> I think, really uh, fucks people up about me. It's you know, I'm it's in my Wikipedia profile. Like, did I regret it? It's like, no, I enjoyed it. People can understand. I, I, I do. I do remember that quote. I do. I was shocked by that quote. You said, but you I did. I mean, I didn't enjoy going it. to prison. But uh, I mean, if it had been a woman who'd been harassed and threatened and and that she'd be considered heroic. You can imagine if someone's fucking with you to that degree, doesn't matter if they have a vagina. I mean, okay. She was two inches shorter than me and 20 pounds lighter than me. Not a huge differential in strength, but she has the entire weight of the cultural sympathy and the legal system on her side. That's, that's more powerful than my fists. And, um, yeah, I, I was absolutely, I think what bugs people is I am never dishonest in order to gain social favor. And I think that's, I mean, people can hate me for entirely legitimate reasons, but I think that's why I'm considered so notorious is I just don't play that social game at all to please people at all. Yeah, I, I'm a hundred, I'm a, that's what I'm saying. You and I have a lot in common. I'm a hundred percent honest. And I, I have a lot of people that absolutely despise me. seems like some people hate me. But it is what it is, and, and however they, you know, however the, however however it falls is however it falls. That's the way I look at it. Um, so obviously you did go to you did you were convicted. You spent a couple of years in prison. Um, they tried to give me uh, twenty five years, but wow. she she couldn't keep her fucking mouth shut, and uh, she wound up. She called my friend Sean Tedgerachi, who's designed a bunch of my book covers. And he taped her so he's gloating about getting away with being violent toward me, gloating about like attacking a woman that I cheated on her with, bashing the woman with an ax handle. And we took all that to the DA and he's like, oh, okay, three years. And I said, okay. And back then you could get time off for good behavior. So I did two years, four months and 24 days. Now they don't even have uh, time off, good time in uh, Oregon, which basically, I mean, you, you get an eight year sentence you do every day. But there's no incentive to behave in prison, which probably it's probably made the prisons more dangerous. Now, I know I know you wrote uh, what was the name of the um, the, the uh, series you wrote, the, um, the, the truckers, the gay truckers, uh, trucker fags in denial. Yeah. And that was didn't you say that was based on um, your your experience with uh, with people and, and prison, the way they behaved? Well, the funny thing about prison and unless I'm non-observant. Because all you hear about prison, and one of the things in the rape issue was an interview with Donnie the Punk, who I believe was raped 65 times his first weekend in D.C. jail in the early 70s. Jesus. Prisons got a lot less dangerous because they started locking up tons more people. And you didn't like not everyone in there was a psychopath. But I didn't witness or even hear about one rape the entire time. And I didn't witness any homosexual behavior, but what was like hilarious to me was guys were always calling each other fags constantly. And it's like, everyone's like 12 again. And so I just thought it'd be funny to do this comic book about these two fat aging, unappealing to women on any level truckers who never shut up about fags. But then one night they, they can't find a hotel room anywhere within 200 miles, so they're forced to sleep in the same motel bed. And they, one of them gets aroused to the smell of the other socks, and then it's on. They start having like the most extreme gay sex, but then the next morning, like shamed by it, they they start uh, they they go on a killing spree. They start killing gays, like to cover their own. And that's a th I mean, I think a lot of people, perhaps most people, have a revulsion toward gay sex, but. 
The ones who scream the loudest about it, uh, that's pretty much clinical projection. I think it just recently happened with Jesse Lee Peterson. And it's funny because I can't understand anyone liking that guy unironically. He's obviously mentally handicapped. Yes. Since he's based, oh, he, you know, he hates fags and, you know, women shouldn't. But it's like they did a documentary that was pretty convincing to me. Not that he was a, a rapist, but that he initiated sex with a bunch of guys. I mean, again, no one thought it was suspicious. Is that this adult male who's never been married? I don't know if Jesse Lee Peterson, I think he might've had an illegitimate kid when he was younger, but never been married and has a house where he lives with a bunch of young men that he rescued off the streets. No one thinks that's suspicious. It's odd. It's odd. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of people like his views, but you're right. He couldn't, he can't put two words together in a sentence. It's so dumb. I mean, I can understand liking him ironically, just like getting off on how amazingly dumb he is, but the, the, the rush to defend him came from a lot of people who also seem to be closeted fags. And I, that, that's all I'll say about that. Speaking of people in the closet, I believe, and I think we, you and I have a mutual enemy and I, I've butted heads with him several times recently. His name is what well, used to be Ali. Uh, oh, um, what was his original name? Well, his name now is Ali Alexander. Uh, Ali Abdul Razak Akbar. I'm not sure he's an enemy. Yeah. I'm not sure he's aware of my existence. I just oh, he, he's my he's definitely my enemy. I yeah, it's, I just uh, how anyone can't see that guy's full of shit is beyond me. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Um, you know, he's a, he's a buddy of Alex Jones. He's a buddy of Nick Fuentes. Uh, and uh, I, how they don't know that he's full of full, absolutely full of shit. I have, well, how does I have, how do they, how do people not know that Nick Fuentes is gay as hell? Right. That ju that he just screams it. Right. Yes. And he's For just this reason. little Twinkie. Really, will never become a full fledged adult male guy who's bragging in his mid twenties that he's never had sex with a girl and never shuts up about faggots. It's like, well, when your voice changes and when you actually have sex with a woman, let me know, pal. Yeah. And, and he's, he's hooked up with all these other incel guys who are obsessed with cock, obsessed with faggotry, never shut the fuck. Talk about gay sex more than fags do. Right. <laughs> it's like, how, does, how is that not like, a, like a, a red light and a blaring ambulance siren to people? Yeah, mega, mega, megaphone screaming, uh, I'm in the closet is the way I've always heard it. Well, so, you know, suddenly out of nowhere, I'm not a faggot. It's like, dude, you're at the grocery store. Like nobody asked you. Yeah, Ali Alexander, he, he claims that he's uh, retired now, but he, he lives on some chat. He's some uh, internet chat program. Uh, and that's apparently that's his retirement. A lot of people go to Florida. Uh, a lot of people retire to Hawaii. Apparently he's retired to a, a chat program. So uh, <laughs> I, I, find that, <laughs> I find that a little bit odd. But uh, yeah. But he so, wasn't he convicted of fraud when he was younger? And... He was convicted of all sorts of crimes, both white collar and blue collar. He uh, broke into, yeah. a, he burglarized a van. Uh, he stole, he stole tons of things. I, I gave a, a whole litany of things, uh, on one of my, uh, one of my previous shows, uh, all the things that all the crimes he committed, uh, and he was, he's a convicted felon. So apparently the only thing he can do is stir up shit. He can't, but I mean, as far as like, I mean, I just want to focus on the, the term enemies. Cause that implies like, you know, you're battling over something or you're trying to subvert it. So these are just people I don't like. That's all uh, enemies. I don't have the time to like, you know, launch a, a jihad against them or whatever. It's, I think they're full of shit, basically, and that, that's about it. 
Yeah, me, 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 and him have actually argued. So, and I dis, I dislike the modern right every bit as much as I dislike the modern left, which seems impossible. People have been so corralled and brainwashed into thinking these are the only two alternatives that uh, you sound like a crazy person to them. But where where people go wrong to me is like the the intense moralizing and trying to take down someone who doesn't fit their moral standards. Like I couldn't care less what anyone else does unless it directly affects me or people who are very close to me and that I love. Otherwise, I'm just entirely disinterested. Well, I mean, I, they don't realize, I mean, the modern right doesn't realize how close they are to SJWs with this you know, hunting down degeneracy. And nah, you're, you're just as fucking bad. And you're so fucking unoriginal. Like, oh, yeah, boomer. It's like, yeah, come up with something like that wasn't invented in 33 AD, guys. Yeah, let's look backwards 2,000 years to tackle modern problems. That sounds like a plan. The, the, only, the, the main problem I have is in modern society right now is, would probably be this whole sexualization of children. That the sexual what? Sexualization of children. But okay, here we Okay, this is going to be... When you were eight, did you and other kids talk about sex? Because at no. my Catholic school in the 60s, that's all we fucking talked about. Yeah, but we didn't have guys dressed up like women, and we didn't have, you know, we weren't taking taking the strip clubs. Uh, how? We, but how fucking prevalent is that? It's really, prevalent. I mean, this is a moral panic. Uh, like, you know, because you know what, uh, we were getting beaten by nuns. Nobody gives a shit about that. None of these fucking trad cats care about. You know, the biggest pedophile ring in the world is the Catholic Church. Yeah, I agree with that. And you know it's it's and it's not some drag queen usually molesting a kid. It's a family member usually. They ignore all of that. They ignore all of that shit. It, it's a that's an overblown fucking. I mean the tranny. Th I did a whole book gender psychosis. Yeah. Why do I object to the tranny thing? Because they're not women. Because it's not true. Otherwise, oh morality. No, no. I'll take. I don't care who you are. It's like you can be an asshole and you can be unethical. No matter what your beliefs are. No matter what your none of that. Well, I, I don't care what they do. They can dress up like a penguin for all I care, as long as as long as they're not involving kids. That's all. That's all I'm saying. And if they want to be, they you know, my entire lifetime, I was born in 1970. My, my entire lifetime, I've heard gay people say over and over again, we just want to be accepted as part of regular society. Well, Why would you want to be? be if, I don't understand well, that either. Why would you well, want to be accepted as part of regular society? Why? Well, well, well let me say this: if you want, if but that if, if that's the stated goal, you can't put on a carnival freak show every year and expect that to happen. That's that's counterproductive. I I mean I thought the gays were more interesting when they were outsiders and <laughs> I, I wrote, wrote once on Twitter I thought part of the thrill of being gay was the possibility of being gay bashed. Now, now that they want to be accepted as part of and get married and the, they're boring now. <laughs> so one of the things um, one of the things that uh, so so I, I know Jim Hogshire. <laughs> uh, started a free free Jim Goad website, yeah. and apparently you were not you were not crazy about that. Uh, I think if you go to jimgo.net slash hogshire.htm or html, the whole story's there. But Jim Hogshire is this guy, blonde-haired, long-haired hippie who looked like Stephen Stills from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He, he gained some prominence by doing a zine called Pills A Go-Go in the 90s, and I mean, drug addict in every possible way. And uh, he had some falling out with this guy, Bob Black, this anarchist. Bob Black called the police on him, which is not something an anarchist usually does. But 
Hogshire went on the run and he, he formed this whole thing about the man, the government, you know, the man is bad. And then he found out I was arrested. Here's the thing. Like they, they didn't, I never bailed out. I got arrested with, and with no convictions on my record, I didn't get out until two and a half years later. But, uh, you, the thing is, and this was a high profile case. The guy who prosecuted me is now the DA of all of Portland. He pretty much made his bones like on my neck. But the thing is, when it's a high-profile case, they're going to record every phone conversation, every visit. So I couldn't tell the guy, well, this is what happened, you know. And I, all I said was, she's lying, which is, I, we proved it with the DNA evidence. Yeah. She said, like, she never hit me. It's like, well, why is my face all fucked up in the mugshot? And why was my blood found mixed with your blood on your jacket? Uh, like, when, the, when they came and did a DNA test. Because when they arrest you for assault, they look for scratches on your hands, like to explain where, and there were no scratches on my hands. She, she hit me a couple times before I, I just decided to retaliate. But Hogshire went on the stool. Hogshire also was a Muslim. Like, I, I don't even know why, but he would always send these letters that would start with inshallah, like in God's name and stuff. And he said, you know, I want to help your case. I'm like, we could do legal research, sure. But instead, he went on this virtuous, like, Jim Goad's an innocent man. He obeyed all traffic signs. I'm like, what? Like, you just became delusional. But the worst thing he did was say, uh, he called the prosecutor Rod Underhill, pervert prosecutor Rod Underhill needs to be shamed and gave the guy's phone, you know, his office's phone number. So people were calling this guy, threatening him. And I got my friend Sean to just, hey, can you like tell him to stop? Right. And Hogshire like never, never, I, I guess he stopped, but he also, he, he raised funds for me and it wasn't much. It was like less than 200 bucks. But back then, 20 years ago in prison, 200 bucks, that'll keep you in combs and shampoo and maybe ice cream every once in a while. It's a lot of money, but he kept it for himself. Oh, <laughs> not good. I don't, I don't know if he's, he, I haven't heard Hyden or hair of him for a while. I don't know if he's alive. So when you were in prison, was there, was there a lot of uh, fights going on? Were there, were you no, involved in fights? Almost or? none, almost nothing. I maybe saw three fights in two and a half years. And, and again, first seven and a half months were county jail. That was the worst. And for understandable reasons, because people were just dragged off the streets, dope sick and drunk or like domestic situations. And no one knew where they were going or, you know, it was un uncertain. So it was much more chaotic in county jail. But nothing, I never heard of any fights or rapes there. Uh, the the minimum security place I was in for a year was, uh, was uh, there were these different dorms, 110 guys in each dorm, 55 double-decker, like, barracks-style bunks. And the final nine months were at Oregon State Penitentiary where I was in with serial killers. And, and that was a maximum place. We, they called it the walls with like the 30-foot cement walls with guys with rifles looking down at you. And over that time, I maybe saw three fights and they were all over card games. Wow. Yeah, because <laughs> people that haven't been in prison, we, we think of it as like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. We think you're just in there. That's, I think that's. I think it might have been that. Might have been that way because, as I said earlier, uh, they used to only incarcerate you know truly people who'd done like heinous things. But uh, they diluted the. But also, I mean, there were lawsuits. You could sue like if you got beat up or raped or whatever. And also, but the the main thing 
And this, this is something like it, it's hard to get across to people. I think a lot of this, you know, prison's just this Thunderdome where you, you know, you have to sharpen your pork chop bones to stab somebody the first day you're there. No, it's bad enough. You're all wearing the same uniform, being in a fucking cage. I mean, if you were ever grounded in your room by your parents, that's, but imagine like for years, that's bad enough. So everyone was wearing the same uniform. They had the same enemy, the guards. I've never seen people cooperate more across racial lines, everything than I saw convicts in prison doing. Okay. I wrote an article. I think the... The URL is uh, jimgo.net slash nicest.html. It's called the, You Meet the Nicest People in Prison. It was true. The night I got out, I'm at a Fred Meyer department store in, in Portland. I'm standing in line for the cash register. Someone bumps into me and keeps walking. And I was shocked because that's that was the first time like I'd been exposed to that sort of behavior in two and a half years. People are very respectful to one another in prison because, you know, you don't know who you bump into. It's like, oh, if you bump into someone in prison, even if it's a big fucking black gorilla guy, gorilla mafia guy, he's going to apologize. It was the most peaceful, like it was miserable because of the incarceration, but there's kind of like a brotherhood there because like you're all on the same team wearing the same uniform. How long were you, uh, was there anybody there to pick you up when you came out or they just dumped you out on the sidewalk or how did Sean Tejirachi, who's you know, who's uh, designed all these. He, and Sean was the one who recorded Sky, like bragging about getting away with violent crimes. That's a huge reason my my sentence was reduced. He picked me up and this girl, Donna, picked me up, who I wrote about in my book, The Headache Factory. She was a 400 pound woman who like took my cause up. I'm, the funny thing I remember, too, is like Sean sent in a box of clothes because he, he went and gathered all my belongings and put it in storage. But uh I'd gained like 30 pounds in prison because they feed you nothing but carb-laden garbage. And so I, <laughs> when I put the jeans on, I'm not sure if you ever saw the episode of Seinfeld where Kramer wears the tight jeans. He's walking like Frankenstein. <laughs> That's what yeah. it was like. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. That was hilarious. Um, how long were you on uh, parole for? I, I can't imagine too long. Uh, the, it, they called it post-prison supervision. The initial sentence was for three years but here's the thing and everybody's warning me in in prison like don't oh you just pray because you had a domestic beef don't get a female parole officer and it's like yeah jim your parole officer is going to be janet taylor i'm like oh fuck <laughs> so i mean i waited two and a half years without pussy it's like mm. but uh, i waited a, like two weeks before i started going out to bars and stuff and uh first girlfriend i had was this rockabilly girl short spiky blonde hair tattoos she was a boxer and moved in with her she started acting weird and this is all chronicled in my book headache factory too she started saying and I, I tried to vet her i asked friends i'm like is she the type that would falsely accuse me of something nah you could give her a black eye she'd bake you pancakes i'm like okay i mean she's she's harbored f fugitives and everything i'm like all right but she started acting weird and saying, well, I don't want to have to send you back to prison. So I'm, I'm panicking. And one day I finally got up and said, I'm leaving. Like, I can't take this anymore. She called my parole officer, called the cops, said I've been beating her for months, which is my biggest nightmare. The good thing is that uh, I knew, I mean, I went and started living in the office of the porno magazine I was writing for. I knew she would call and, and apologize, and she did. But I got recording equipment. And the, these sound files are on my website. And I'm like, and, and like a DA, she's like, I miss you. And I'm sorry. And I just freaked out that I was losing you. I'm like, yeah, but Marissa, you know, 
I never hit you. Why did you tell them I hit you? Because I couldn't. I'm like, yeah, I got her to say 90 different ways that I never hit her. And so when I was called into my parole officer, uh, she, she was going to have me like revoked. I'm like, well, listen to this tape. And she listened to it and she's like, oh my God, I'm really sorry. You know, it's exactly the way you said it was. This is just some bitter woman that you dumped her. And, you know, as you can imagine, I deal with a lot of liars. I'm like, I know. But that was only six months into the parole. I never even had to check in after that. She she realized I was legit. So. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Uh, now, one of the things I've, I've noticed that you said it's that uh, that the issue with uh, with with in this country is not racial. You think it's um, you think it's class. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't make definitive. It's uh, that's what I said in the redneck book. I think it's both. Uh, my naivete when I wrote that book was I thought that like racial divisions would magically disappear if the elites didn't manipulate people that way. I, yeah, nah. You learn in prison like your your skin color is a, a gang tattoo. Yeah. Even though like there was, <laughs> I should write more about this guy named Snake, which of course like it's it wasn't there a I never even saw the Simpsons, but I think there was a convict someone told me called yeah. Snake. It's yep. like the most cliched. This guy could have been president if he'd been raised on the right side of the tracks. But he was, I mean, he had 100% Peckerwood tattooed on his throat. Peckerwood is like a like a hardcore white convict, like a loyal, trustworthy. Uh, and everyone, everyone, brothers, Mexican fucking love snake. Because he had this great sense of humor. He was a psychological master. If someone was causing trouble, and that was the thing. It's like the loud mouse and the assholes who get beat down really quick. Someone was causing trouble. Snake would summon him in front of the crowd and either having laughing at himself along with the crowd or pissed off and having everyone laughing at him. And he'd quash a lot of beasts just that way. But uh, what was I? I'm, I'm rambling. What was the original question? <laughs> the, the original question was, do you think I, I, I think I, I think rates is absolutely real and I think it makes a difference. And uh, yeah. I, I mean, uh, one of the things one of the things that de-liberalized me was when the book the bell curve came out right in the early 90s because uh charles murray yep i i used to i mean i when i was a wigger in the 80s and people get this wrong too i wasn't a rapper i didn't talk black i just liked the music and at the time rap in the 80s was good and it was the only new music really rock and roll died you know to me rock and roll died before the beatles came along but uh god god, god help me i hate rap music <laughs> well, it was, I mean, as, as a writer, I guess some of these guys were amazing lyricists and could rhyme off the top of their heads. And that was, and it was a new way of making music. It wasn't guitars. It was sampling music and rhyming over it. Either way, it's, you know, different strokes, but, uh, I would interview these rappers and, you know, against my better judgment, I'm thinking, God, he's dumb. God, this one's dumb. Jesus Christ, this one's dumb. But then I also did an article for Playboy in 1989 about Vietnamese gangs in Orange County and it was the opposite thing. It's like, these people are fucking geniuses. These are people who grew up in much worse conditions than any black person in America ever did. And they came over here and they've got mansions and Maseratis and own restaurants by the time they're 22. And the bell curve came along and confirmed my suspicions. Like, oh, there is a hierarchy of intelligence among different racial groups. And it's something that needs to be considered. Well, you it, can't it, make people equal. My, the biggest philosophical change really the mainly the only one i've had over the past 30 years is i i ditched equality i don't think there's i think it's uh, a fiction well to me you either believe in evolution or you don't and uh right and if you and, believe in evolution you can't possibly believe everyone wound up equal yeah you, you can't have groups of people that, that developed for th tens of thousands of years in alaska 
and people that grew, grew up and, and developed in t for tens of thousands of years, say in the swamps of Florida, and get the exact same outcome if you're mm -hmm. if you're if you're developing in response to your environment. That's just not that's not how evolution works. Yep. So, um, but reality is is rarely popular, if ever. Um. All right. So that yeah. So yeah, we do have tribalism, but. You know, I, I think I think a big part of it is, is racial, unfortunately, and I don't see any way around. Uh, I mean, I've got a really weak tribal instinct because I'm an outlier and I'm unusual, I guess. You know, the tribe never accepted me in the first place. And uh, but I'm tribal in the sense that I know I can be targeted because of, you know, my skin color. Or, but you, you know what? My... You know what? It seems like that white people are the only people on the planet that are that, that they have a weak sense of tribalism. I think it's been uh, it's been boiling the frog. Uh, tell that to the Vikings, or tell that to white people a hundred years ago. Oh yeah, of course, of course. It's a slow, deliberate erosion of that tribalism. But I, I never had it in the first place. But I think that places me in a, a unique position. Even even though when I was like all pro black in the eighties, you see Larry Bird get a basket, and there's some instinct in me going, yeah. Right. You wanted to see the white guy get the basket. You wanted to see the white boxer win. And I found that it's very important to those instincts that just come out of you unexpectedly that are counterintuitive and go against what you tell yourself you are. Listen to those instincts. It's like there's something there. It's like, you know, it, despite me trying to be anti-racist, I still want the white guy to get the basket. Right. And that was that was fascinating to me. And it's like, but no one's I've, I've said for years and it's unrealistic probably either way, because if, if everyone was allowed racial identity, there'd probably be a war. But if everyone was not allowed a racial identity. There'd be a war anyway, but what we have now, it's going to be the worst war possible because you've got one group that's entirely stigmatized and then all these other groups that are encouraged to bask and, and marinate in their racial identity. That's not going to end well. Well, sadly, what's, what's going to happen eventually, and I don't think it'll happen in our lifetimes, but what's going to happen is, is that we're going to turn into Brazil or South or South Africa where all right. the white people are in, in, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in compounds with, with with security walls, and it's just it's a, like a siege situation, and it, it it's going to be it's it's going to be horrible. So I'm, I'm I'm glad I'm not going to be around for it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I always say I'd like to live forever, but I, I don't I don't think I would. I don't think I would. I'm I'm feisty though, man. It's like I've had so many near death experiences. I had a plum sized brain tumor in 2008. I have had a little now. had a little touch of uh, it wasn't cancer. It was a non non malignant tumor, but the, Oh, okay. gigantic there was they had to open my head to get it out and uh i'll be on seizure pills for the rest of my life wow. i've had all kinds of but uh i don't know if it's the celt in me or whatever or i just think i'm right that keeps me going yeah, yeah i think I, i'm I, well well preserved for 61 yeah i was i'm i'm uh, i'll be 52 in november and i i was diagnosed with cancer recently and uh, who knows five years ten years two years whatever it is i'm gonna live it out so, yep. uh, so the one, one thing I definitely want to ask you about is your, the, the one titled rape. Now, I did, I did a, a show, uh, about, uh, rape is about sex, not about power was the title of the podcast. Uh, what was your, what was the, the, uh, issue, uh, rape? What was that? What basically did that cover? Hold on. You said a title rape. I don't know what you, uh, you're talking about the rape issue, the issue four of yes. answer me. Yes. And I've written about it. I mean, I, I said, uh, I even, I 
quoted the rape is not about sex, it's about power. And I said, well, then there's an awful lot of penises and vaginas that need explaining. But again, it's these categorical things. It's about both. And what's the difference between sex and power? What's more powerful than the access to reproduction and survival of the species? They're not two separate things. They're almost synonymous. But the thing is, the, the irony is when they went after the rape issue, it's like, we want to jail you and we want to put you and we want you to suffer. It's like, well, that's kind of sounds like it's about power. Right. It's like, are you against power? And I think that the left, they think sex is good. I agree with them. Sex is one of the, one of the best things about being alive, but they don't think power is good. So they have to divorce the two. Sex is entire, rape is entirely about sex and power. Yeah, it's well, about the, both. The, well, to, to me, it's, it's, it's a crime. It's, it, lo, lo, quite often, it's, it's a secondary crime. So it's, it's, it starts out as a burglary. It turns into a rape. It starts out as a kidnapping. It turns into a rape. Turns, you know, robbery, whatever the case may be. And, and, it, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a secondary crime of convenience. I, you um, know, the thing is, though, like uh, you look at movies made in the 1930s, look at any Marx Brothers movie and you got Harpo there. The, the minute there's a girl, he's on it, humping her leg and stuff. There used to be a rape scene in every movie, that's, every black and white movie ever made. I think probably, you know, in prehistoric times, rape was the default. There was no right. courting. There was, you know, you didn't send her emojis but you just fucking took you know you didn't ask her dad i mean it's yeah i, I don't think it's this aberration is it's something that doesn't again i'm so weird it's like i i don't think i'd be capable of raping someone because i'm i'm uh insecure and vain enough that i need the girl to be into me before i even make a move i need i need one green flag after the next right I am repulsed at the idea of like forcing yourself on anyone. I mean, I've had girls try to force themselves on me and it's disgusting. Well, even if you're not repulsed by it, how could you get turned on when somebody is crying and begging you not to? I, I, you know, there, maybe it doesn't matter. And I, I think in a lot of cases, it's just like with the gays, it's just like with pedophiles, their early sexual experiences imprinted something on them. I, I mean, I, I think... Look for the logical. Re Don't look for good and evil. That's where everyone gets retarded. Look for true or false. The rates of like same-sex molestation by an adult during childhood among adults who are gays are like 20. I think for women, it's like 20 times higher than like straight women for lesbians for and for gay men. It's like seven times higher. It's like that. That's not to be ignored. So like you were ridiculously more likely to have been molested when you were a child. And then you become gay. It's like, right. Maybe it's, it's a neurological thing where like your brain maps out. Okay. And that's the weird thing too. I think like in some of these situations, the, the kid, the kid has some kind of pleasure from it sometimes. I mean, there's, there's a, there's also a documented, I mean, a lot of women have orgasms when they're raped. Well, that, the shocking thing to me was when I was, when, when I was going to university is they were saying that, 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 that a constant on the, in the top five uh, sexual fantasies of female is is the rape fantasy, which I always thought well, was bizarre at the time. Uh, and here's here's the thing too: it's like I, <laughs> the minimum place, the place with the barracks that I described, Santiam Correctional Facility in Salem, Oregon. I, I found out later, like half the guys were in there for sex crimes. I didn't hear one of these guys ever say, "Oh boy, I'd like to rape that bitch." And actually, in prison, the worst thing you could be was a rapist or a child molester, rapo or a chomo. But 
and there was one guy, I mean, one guy was especially vocal about how he wanted to slit Rapo's throats. Then one day he's not there anymore. And then a month later, I look at the Salem newspaper and it's like, oh, he's his parole officer's looking for him. He skipped out on his sex offender class. Oh. Um, I mean, people who are moralized about this, I've, I've kind of lost my way here, but uh, I, I think uh, I think it's more neurological. I think once we master neurology, a lot of the old superstitions are just going to fall by the wayside. It's not evil. It's it's a it's an impulse that's somehow been perverted by traumatic experiences. Yeah, it's, it seems like, and I could be wrong, but it seems like that homosexuality and pedophilia and, and deviant sexual behavior, uh, it's, it's, it's like everything else in life, whether, it's, whether you're an animal, whether you're a plant, whether you're a human being, it seems to be part genetic, part, part environment. Part, part, uh, sure. I mean, part and there, part you know, with some gay people, I mean, the, the weird thing is when I was a kid, gays were all considered to be sissies and weak and limp-wristed. You always see them like, you know, people doing the limp wrist thing. And uh, now they're all like bodybuilders and these maxed out fucking hulks and shit. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a mix of things. I think if you're hormonally uh, indistinct, if you're like a little effeminate, if you're, you know, you don't have as much testosterone, maybe you're less appealing to women and you go gay for like lack of opportunity. There was something uh, bisexual by necessity. Like, the, and I think it was Woody Allen who said a long time ago, there's nothing wrong with bisexuality. Like it doubles your chances of a date on a Saturday night. But it, it's, a, yeah, it, it's like the idea that it's one, it's about sex or it's about power or it's this. Or it's, a lot of times it's much more complicated than people make it. But the problem is people are simple-minded and they need simple fucking answers. And that's why when you present it in a complicated way, you're not going to be as successful as someone who tells you they have the fucking answer. So that's that's my dilemma. <laughs> yeah, I com I completely agree with that actually. Um, so you know, what what do you? Uh, oh, there was another question I was going to ask you. I am losing my question. Uh, okay, so I know I know you've uh, had some interactions with uh, Gavin McGinnis and the Proud Boys, uh, or at least Gavin McGinnis. Yeah, what's Gavin. Your, what, what, what's your take on Gavin? I, I mean, I, I do a show every week on Gavin's network. Gavin, I mean, since I think 2002 has supplied me with steady employment. He got me a gig writing advice when he was with Vice. And then they got in trouble for some of the things I wrote and for some of the things he said. He was fired from Vice. He got me the gig at Tacky Mag that lasted for 10 years. He's got me this current gig. Uh, according to him and Sarush Alvi, who was one of the three guys who found advice, answer me was the magazine I did was the inspiration for vice. They build a, you know, billion dollar empire out of it. I'm still working <laughs> seven days a week. Um, <laughs> you know, so I guess, you know, and he, and he's, he's always spoken well of my writing ability and everything. Uh, we have, I, I mean, he's much more social than I am. He's much more into male bonding. Once I discovered pussy, it's like, bye, guys. I've got no time for you. I think, you know, male bonding is for when you can't figure out how to get a woman. But, uh, and I mean, I'm not, I'm, I mean, Gavin has turned religious. He's into republicanism and stuff. So, you know, there's some definite differences, but uh, he's been cool to me. 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Gavin McGinnis fan, actually. I, I don't agree with every single thing that comes out of his mouth, obviously, but that's the case with anybody. But I, I'm definitely a Gavin McGinnis fan. Uh, I felt I, I could be wrong, and but I kind of felt like he abandoned the the Proud Boys a little bit when there was uh, when the when the when the shit hit the fan. Um, and uh, I from what of... I know about that, and when you're talking about when uh, there was a fight on the streets of New York in 2018, yeah. To my knowledge, it was uh, to save like all of them from going down on RICO charges. Okay. Because I mean, a gang has a leader, and he's like, okay, we don't have a leader anymore. He still talks about them all the time. I'm uh, editing his book on the Proud Boys. Yeah, he, but it's one of those man. things. It's like I'm not. I like I said. I don't understand male bonding. I'm not a Western chauvinist. Uh, I don't think the West is best at anything these days. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, otherwise we're I guess iconoclastic in similar ways, and like to use humor to get our points across. Yeah, I I'd, uh, actually I I, I uh, aspire to uh, interview him sometime, but I, I don't know if that's even a possibility. But um... dead air. Oh yeah, dead air. Sorry. <laughs> put put some music in or something. There you go. So where do you uh, where do you see things going for you in the future? What's your future plans? For my future, the thing that's agonizing, but that I'm most juiced about right now is finally, finally. After two years, I mean, Answer Me has been reprinted millions of times. Uh, there were two anthologies that only had the first three issues. In 2017, there was an anthology that had finally all four issues, including the rape issue, sold out. But over the last two years, it uh, it got – what happened was the place that printed it in 2017 was in Canada, of all places. And the day I was going to make the down payment and hand the files in for the new reprint in 2020, they told me by email, we can't do it. The day I was supposed to pay for it, they're like, we just got an uh, order from corporate offices that we're only allowed to print stuff that's full color on the inside. I immediately thought this was a lie that they were just saying, instead of you know having the guts to say we're too scared to print this. Uh, so I, I, and the guy said he was going to find me a new printer and he didn't answer the email. So I'm okay. I'm sure it's a lie. But then I, I contacted them a year later and they're like, Oh, the reason that guy didn't answer you is he died. Of course we'll print it. You know what? It has to be full color. So we took a year colorizing everything like the original black and white line art, mostly Nick Bugas, but Jim Blanchard colorized his own drawings and Nick colorized the rest of it. Me and Sean, and just using Photoshop tricks, you know, uh, colorized pictures, everything else. And so we finally, it, this was in May, I gave it to the printer in Canada and they're like, no, this is too offensive. I'm like, you son of a bitch. Like you wasted a year, but now we have this colorized version. Then I, uh, someone suggested a Chinese printer. And the thing that's really, I mean, if you want, if you're a Western Supreme, like, Man, like the idi the idiocy of these guys in Canada, and it was in Quebec, but like just getting a, a question answered, or it, it was like pulling teeth. These chi these Chinamen, halfway around the world, and China, you know, Chinese is, or Mandarin or whatever can is their main language. Every question I had, they answered immediately. They had it all mocked up, ready to go, like so efficient. They're gonna fucking bury us, right? But then what happened was. The Chinese government got a peek at it, and they're like, no. So it fell back to me, and finally we we found a place in, I'm just going to say another Asian country, 
But then there were complications because when you color, because Answer Me doesn't really exist in in uh, like type and images form anymore. It's just these are just scans of the thirty year old artboards. When you make that that uh, either bitmap or grayscale image into CMYK, it makes everything CMYK, including the black type. So we've just spent a month redoing all that shit using the old scans, mixing it with the new colors. So that because if if you have CMYK type. I'm not sure how familiar, and I don't want to get tedious with this, but C is cyan, it's light blue, M is magenta, it's like pink, Y is yellow, and for some reason, black is K. You have to pass through four times, and unless it's like razor sharp, if the black type is actually 100% cyan, it's going to be blurry. Right. So we, we just resolved all that shit, and it should be, I mean, it's going to take three to four weeks to print and then like three to four months to get here on a slow boat. The other thing too is like hardly anyone in the USA would touch it. The only place I found that would touch it uh, was a print on demand place in Tennessee, but they wanted 31 bucks per copy. Oh yeah. And the place in South Korea is a lot less, including postage. So I, I and hopefully it'll be done, you know, with, who knows though? I mean, it's kind of stupid to be optimistic about anything these days, but I'll get that out. And uh, I'm moving. I, I haven't branded it yet. And I think branding is important just because people are, like I said, simple minded. If I come up with a term for what I'm trying to do, I'm just trying to get back to being apolitical and irreverent and logical like I was in the early 90s. I think the entire country has been politically poisoned and into two camps as if there are only two ways to look at things. So when I get it, get more than a vague notion of what I want to try to do and get back to that, uh, I just sound kind of dumb. But uh, I've never for a moment described myself as right wing or especially conservative. I mean, it's you know, same root as constipation, pretty it's just uptight. And and it, I think it's kind of a failed ideology. It's like, look, you know, I know the current year is a, is a meme and a cliche, but to think you're going to LARP and recreate what society was like in the 1800s or the 1300s. No, like it's dr culture is driven by technology. So I, I, I mean, I would be happy with the 1950s at this point, to be honest. But it's not going to happen. 20, 20 we, years I mean, the, the USA was 93% white in the 1950s. You're not going to, you're not going to be able to force that. You have to come at it from a different angle. We're not going to go backwards. That, that, that's where conservatives get entirely fucking wrong. And then that's why they lose. They have to realize where, and it doesn't mean accepting transgender. No, be logical and intelligent. No, you're not a woman. Here's your, here's your chromosome test. Just get back to logic. Get away from this mysticism and moralism and good and evil. Just Because that's where the left fucked up. The, left, the reason I stopped being a leftist is they started reminding me of the nuns in Catholic school, where everything was good and evil, not right and wrong. Just stick to true and false. I, I think that's a better plan. But yeah, when did when did we become when did it seems like that uh, we went from being uh, being uh, you know puritanical to the seventies you know six late sixties early seventies mid seventies uh, of free love and everybody's doing whatever the hell they want to do and now we've we, we've done all all the way back to the liberals which you know they in in some ways they're not puritanical at all you know they've got green hair they've got spikes through every orifice they can put a spike through. Uh, but they're entire. Know, they're now. You're. But, I think you're wrong. They're entirely puritanical. Because if that, you don't, that's, that's that's my point. That's my point. Outwardly, they don't look it, but inwardly, they they they, they uh, cringe at every little thing. They're morally hysterical. Yeah. Right. 
But I have I, and I found, I mean, this is one of these conundrums, whatever you want. I mean, the most moral, most truly ethical good people I've ever known are not moralistic at all, and they hate moralists. It's usually the people who scream, you know, Jesus talked about this. The ones who point the fingers and scream, they're the ones, you, it's like the ones calling everyone fags. It's like, number one, what's it to you? What do you care? And number two, it's like, I think you're protesting too much. Usually the people who are screaming about someone else being bad, those are bad people. As far as, and I, you can't quantify good and bad, but like for my take, they're, they're, they're malicious or. They're everything that's traditionally seen as bad. But no, the left, I mean, that's, that's I think, where this new right completely fucks the pooch is, oh, they're degenerate. No, those people aren't. Modern leftists are not having fun. They're as outraged, you know, about the bet noirs of the modern ages as anybody. The problem is, I think, five or six years ago, the, the right started getting religious and puritanical, and it's like, fuck both of you. Well, there you go. <laughs> but as I think there's, I think there's an audience that wants to hear that. I just have to figure out how to phrase it. I think right. a lot of people are sick of, of both sides. I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, so Trump, yay or nay? Supporter or, or, or can't stand the man? Uh, it seems, it seems like in 20, 2016, yes. When he bombed Syria in 2017, I was out. Okay. And I think, I think what uh, I, 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 the people who still support him are fucking idiots. It's like he, who did he pardon? Rappers and like, I don't know, some bankers or something. Like he didn't pardon anybody who like took a bullet for him. How did the, how did the country get better? Was there a reduced deficit? Was there a wall? Was there less censorship, which I thought would at least be the one thing? No, everything got worse. Everything. So I think what people are absolutely retarded is thinking it matters who's president. The president really doesn't set policy. It's it's the you know the Federal Reserve, so and, and it's it, it's this atavistic. You, know, you need a king. You need a leader. I don't fuck you all. People are way too obsessed with who the president is, and I mean, I think things were better when Obama was president. Things got worse when Trump, and now they're worse under Biden. Why? Not because of who's president. These are just the organic processes of a civilization falling apart. Who was president didn't matter. People need to wake the fuck up to that. So if you decide, who would you, is there anybody you'd like to see run for president in 2020? No, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's, it's just a puppet. They don't really do much. Yeah. I, I think it's, I, I would personally like to see DeSantis. Uh, I, I would have liked to see second term, but I'd rather see DeSantis. Well, what improved, what improved under his term? Uh, you know, the, the fact that we address things like illegal immigration, we didn't build the wall. We didn't really get anything accomplished, but at least Did they we stop the right illegal goal. immigration. It, no, but at least we had the right goal in mind. It's impossible. It's impossible because a president's not a king. Okay. Well, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah but I mean, I think people should be, I'd like to shame people for needing a fucking leader. Maybe like, you know, if, if you're going to get into the shame game, it's like, what are you, were you a peasant? Why don't you like chart your own fight? It really doesn't matter that much who the fucking president is. It's a, it's a childish way of looking at things. Oh, well, my leader, my guy makes me feel good. They're basically PR people. They're, I think the president's main role is to inspire public confidence. And, and, and you know, whether it's, it's legitimate, you know, they should be confident or not. And no one's been really good at that for a long, long time. So no pick for 2024. Huh? So no pick whatsoever for 2024. I'm not voting. I, no, I don't care. 
And I think people, people, and like, how could you like go through what happened like during the Trump thing and think that it matters or that your vote like means a fucking thing? There's only two things I ever voted for in my life that passed. One was this, uh, it was a proposition on the ballot in California back in, I think it was 94. It was to roll back, it was to deny illegal aliens health insurance. And I'm a legal resident and I didn't have health insurance, but these people were getting free health insurance. No, no, right. actually, no, no. So that was, that was something in 94. I'm thinking of something earlier that I voted for. I didn't even stick around to vote for that one. The thing was for uh, car insurance. And it was just this thing. We've decided that, you know, the, the auto insurance companies inflate prices. We're going to roll back. Uh, I think it was 20% car insurance rates. I voted for it. It passed. I'm like, Oh, democracy. Great. I'm part of it. I have a, I have a say. And then three months later, I was paying double the car insurance because the uh, outgoing insurance commissioner found some loophole. Same thing when Trump, I, I voted for Trump in 2016. Yes, yes. Now I can speak my mind. I can get more gigs because there's not this choking censorship. The censorship got a million times worse. He was going to have, he was going to get rid of the national debt. He added more fucking debt per year than Obama did. The wall was not built. Nothing was, I mean, he was, he was supposedly this genius who could negotiate with it. nothing. It was just chaos. And now it's worse. And like it doesn't matter who the president is. The country's falling apart. Doesn't matter. Yeah, we're we're definitely we're not we're not as close to the bottom as as Europe is. I, I'm, I'm amazed. I think we're, we're, we're in worse. We're I think we're in worse shape than Europe. We're we're circling the bull. That's for sure. We're definitely circling the bull, which is sad. It really is sad. But again, it's not going to happen in our lifetimes. And I don't have kids, thankfully. And uh, so uh, you know, I don't mean to. Do you regret that? I, of course, I regret it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be fifty-two in November. I, I regret it. I, I regret it. But you know, so many, so many, so many fucked up things have happened in my life, uh, and uh, I, I wouldn't want kids to have to deal with with my nonsense and, and all the all the trials and tribulations I've been through. Uh, it just it's just not fair to kids. You know, it's it's bad enough if you if you live a, a you know a screwed up life and 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 don't really you know get get your ducks in a row the way you, you'd like them to be. Uh, but to involve children. Uh, you know, it's, I just don't want to, I don't want to mess anybody else's life up. I mean, you know, like thinking America is going to be great. It's like, like I said, we're not going to go back to the fifties and whatever you like nostalgic and probably corny ass and factually incorrect, whatever the, the fifties, like I would have liked to have lived in the fifties. It was probably the best time to be in America. It was on top of the world, but at the same time, you couldn't say hell. You couldn't say damn. (laughs) <laughs> right. Like, I mean, there, there were all kinds of things that were fucked up back then, too. And I mean, there was right. a, a moral viciousness back then. And, and I, I don't, it was Theodore Dalrymple that I got writing for Tackies. He said something once, he's like, the level of prudery in a society is pretty much always constant. They just choose different things to get prudish about. Back then, like if you had a black girlfriend or were gay or like were irreligious, you'd be a, a pariah. Now, if you're like the opposite of any of those things, you're a pariah. <laughs> it's like, well, that's progress. Why don't you just get rid of the script where like they create pariahs? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm yeah. fascinated too. I mean, I, it's, it's kind of naive to be libertarian, but I was fascinated with how both sides of the spectrum started demonizing libertarians. I'm thinking that's some sort of psyop where it's like, no, we're going to get you into big government. Left, right, doesn't fucking matter. Like no matter who you vote for, the government gets elected. 
Well, li libertarians, I, I like a lot of the things they say. The problem is, is that they have absolutely no chance of. of well, it's, but it's also it's unrealistic too, because I mean, Oregon uh, decriminalized all drugs, and now people are just dropping like flies and shitting in the streets. Over the libertarians, good yeah. libertarianism is good if you're dealing with rational, responsible people. But most people are fuck ups, so it's it's kind of unrealistic. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's a fantasy world that could never exist. Right. But so is everything else. So is this idea that we're going to go back to what we were. It's like, no, nah, no way. That's not how history works. But it's, I mean, America is falling apart because there's no common ground. It's too diverse. Like you, you heard about, you know, two, these banks were too big to fail. America's too big to to succeed. It's 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 like it's like I went to I went to pick out some uh, some carpeting with my with my girlfriend. And they showed us all these swaths, and they showed us so many different versions of the same color that you lose all perspective. And I think that's kind of the way the country is. There's so many different, slightly slight variations across the country. So many people fighting their, for their own little niche that we're so with none of us are unified, and we're constantly fighting against the middle. And it, it just it just it's pure chaos. We don't have the same uh, patri patriotism or sense of community or or a culture anymore, and I, I just don't see any way to reverse that. Unfortunately, I just yeah. think it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I I agree, which is why I don't care about voting or any of that shit. I'm just trying to carve out a way that's okay for my son and my wife and my dog and me and the people I care about and fuck everybody else. And if that's so, narcissistic or anti, like fuck you, I don't care about your opinion. <laughs> like it, it people is, care. People. What fascinates me about most humans is they care more about what other people think of them than they care about like whether they're true to themselves. That's one thing that I will always be divorced from most of humanity about. Most people care more about their reputation than whether they they actually like esteem the decisions they make or whether they feel like a sellout or they're they're betraying their true selves just to please other people. That's, I think, that's something that needs to be worked out neurologically. Well, I, I don't think it will be, and I'll tell you why, because we're, we're essentially herd animals. Uh, speak for yourself. I'm not a herd animal, and maybe you're not, but the point is is that I'm saying human beings in general. Well, that's what I mean. Uh, until they find out the neurological roots of that and find a way to correct it, it's going to be that way. Yeah. So last question, unless you have something else you'd like to discuss. Uh, I'm going to, uh, well, I don't think you can put you on the spot. You don't seem like the type of person can be put, but I'll put on the spot. But is there any possible way that I can pressure you into, or I can influence you into getting, uh, you know, whispering in Gavin McGinnis's ear and, and possibly securing an interview? People ask, but uh, probably not too likely. I, I, I assume the chances was pro were probably yeah. safe, but, but I always have to ask. <laughs> yeah. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? He's dealing with a lot of shit, especially now. I mean, the January 6th stuff. Uh, he's also, uh, I think they're getting involved. Uh, they're going to move out of New York, too. So he's he's a bit busy. Gotcha. It's, it's weird because his arc is like mine, but like magnified. Like, you know, I'm blamed for a White House shooting. He's blamed for taking over the U.S. government or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Goad. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Uh, I've enjoyed our conversation. To be honest yes, with you, sir. I thought I thought I had as about as much chance of getting you uh, in an interview as I did McGa Gavin McGinnis, if if not less. So I, I'm really pleased that you uh, that you're amiable to that. And 
I, I really enjoyed it. It's been an, it's been over an hour. It's been interesting. Uh, usually, usually I don't, but uh, I mean, because it, it's weird. The show that I do is just me talking to a camera for two hours. Uh -huh. Sometimes it's better to talk to somebody else to hash things out. So well, you, you, a, caught, you, you caught me in an okay mood. <laughs> you're you're a hell of an interview. You you, you know I, I, I almost basically it was autopilot. <laughs> you, you, okay. supplied all, you supplied all the information I wanted to know, and all I had to do is is comment every once in a while. So I, I really appreciate it. Uh, excellent interview. Uh, hopefully sometime in the future you'll be up for another interview if something happens. Uh, and if not, uh, I've enjoyed this one, and uh, I, I really appreciate your time. Fantastic. Thank you, sir. Okay, sir. You have a great day. All right. Take care. Take care. Thank you for joining me for the Jim Goat interview today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We drop a podcast every Monday through Friday, uh, once a day, and they can range anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half to two hours or more, depending on the topic and depending on the guest. We talk about a wide range of issues from gun control to abortion to illegal immigration to violent crime and everything else you could possibly think of. But any socio-political issues you could, you could possibly dream up, we talk about it, and even some you probably wouldn't think of. So anytime you want to pop in, please pop in. Please subscribe. Please uh, feel free to give us feedback. We love feedback, whether it's negative feedback or positive feedback. It doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, we really try to give you the best possible interviews and, and topics to discuss that we can, we can think of. So please feel free to catch us. We drop an episode uh, at 1231 a.m. every day, Monday through Friday.